Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. One of the best lines in movies ever. The truth. You can't handle the truth. The truth. We want to know the truth. We want to know when people talk that they're telling the truth. We got politicians who know how to spin the truth. We got advertisers who stretch the truth. We got telemarketers who will kind of bend the truth. But what we want is we want to know the truth. We want to know, is this something that I can believe in? Is it something I can trust? We want to know. Will someone please tell us the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? And that is no different than people 2,000 years ago when a Jewish rabbi named Yeshua, Jesus, walked the countryside and spoke the truth. He came and he taught and something incredible happened. His message was straightforward. It was simple. It was honest. And by the thousands, people came and listened. And they followed him. And they believed in him. And he said things like, it's recorded in John 8, that even as he spoke, verse 30, many people put their faith in him. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. In two simple sentences, He spoke some very powerful words. Of course, they were bold and powerful and not without controversy. So you read on, verse 33, they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves to anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free... You will be free indeed. I know that you're Abraham's descendants, yet you're ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you do what you have learned from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do the things that Abraham did. As it is, you're determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. See, for Jesus, the truth wasn't pious platitudes. When Jesus spoke the truth, he wasn't just spouting philosophical ideas or fanciful musings. For Jesus, when he spoke, he said, this is truth. And when he's saying it's truth, he says, this is reality. It's real. It's everyday kind of stuff. And those are the things that I'm speaking to you. I'm speaking to you truth. And if you will take that and believe that, it'll set you free. In two simple sentences, he brought it all into perspective. Saying, I am giving something that you can believe in, that you can stake your life on. And when you do, it'll be liberating to you. So what does he want from us? When he speaks the truth, it's about reality. So there's got to be some kind of response. 
What is he giving to us when he gives us the truth? That's what I want to talk about a little bit this morning. As a revealer of truth, what is it that Jesus is giving us? Well, the first thing, it says that he's, he's giving us an authority that we can embrace, that we can grab hold of. In fact, he says, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Jesus was claiming authority. He's saying, my words are the ones that you can hang on to. In fact, if you hold on to them, you will truly be my disciples. Speaking with authority there, he says, here's something you can hold on to. Now, there were other rabbis at Jesus' time. There were no end to rabbis. But he spoke like no other rabbi. He taught like no other teacher. Luke 4.32 says they were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. John 9.2 says the Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? Now, what are they talking about? Well, you see, for a rabbi, his job was to help people understand and live the Torah. There was no greater goal in life than to live life according to God's word, according to the Torah, the law. And it was the rabbi's job to teach and explain what the Torah was about and how you were to live it. Because of a command, for instance, that on the Sabbath day you will rest and you shall do no work on the Sabbath. One of the Ten Commandments. Well, what constitutes work? How do we know what we're doing if it's work or not? And that was the rabbi's job to interpret that. And there were many schools of thought, many different rabbis. And some would say, well, if you travel two miles, that's work. If you walk one mile, that's not. And others would say, no, no, no. If you're walking one mile, but there's going to be financial profit to you, then that's work. So even walking one mile would be too much. And so the rabbi's job was to try and interpret that for people because how do you know when you're obeying and when you're disobeying the law? And typically what would happen is in these schools of thought, rabbis would kind of tend to group into different different beliefs and teachers. And some, for instance, would follow the teachings of Rabbi Hillel. He was a well-known, he was considered a great rabbi of the time. Another one was Rabbi Shammai. Who do we follow? Well, if you're a follower of Hillel, this is what Hillel teaches. If you're a follower of Shammai, this is what Shammai teaches. And so every time that a rabbi spoke, he would often cite and quote other rabbis, particularly greater rabbis and more well-respected rabbis. It's kind of like, well, it's kind of like when you do a sermon. You know, I have people from time to time ask me, so what do you do during the rest of the week? Because everybody knows pastors only work one day a week on Sundays, right? You know, and I go through all the list of things. Well, I counsel, you know. But the truth of the matter is, the bulk of my time during the week is spent studying. That's pretty much what I do. Think of it this way. You have a term paper that is due every week, okay? So you've got to do all your research all week long, write this up, make it understandable, and present it every, every weekend, okay? That's kind of my job. So what I do typically is I begin on Tuesday morning, and I just start reading through. I read through the passages that I'm going to teach on. I think about that. I get out commentaries. I get other people who have written about this. I want to know what they have to say about it. And, 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 and very often, in fact, you'll notice that very often I will quote or cite other teachers, because it's only that I'm not smart enough to come up with this stuff on my own. So I find other smarter people than me, and they say good things, and I like the way they say it, so I quote them. And I look so smart at it, you know? Well, that's what a rabbi did. That's pretty much what a rabbi did. He would study, he would consider, he would pray over the scriptures, he would read other rabbis' writings, he would listen to other rabbis' speeches, speeches and teachings, and then he would quote and cite those that he believed to be true. 
The thing is, Jesus comes along and he doesn't have this whole rabbinical school tradition. They say, how can he speak such things? How did he get such learning without having studied? He had never been a part of a rabbinical school. And in fact, when Jesus does speak, he says things like, you have heard it said, quoting other rabbis, but I say to you, quoting nobody but himself. He didn't quote or cite precedents. He spoke with his own authority. You find very often, he says things like, truly, truly, I say to you, Amen, amen. Verily, verily, King James Version. <laughs> you ever wondered what it is? Why does, it say, why does he say that twice? Because he's claiming his own authority. And they listen to him. He says, he speaks like nobody else. He has an authority that no other rabbi has. And he comes and he says, if you hold to my teaching, you will truly be my disciples. Take hold of my authority. In fact, literally translated is, if you remain in my words. Literally, it means to take up residence. Make your home in my words. Study and listen and pray over and think over and put into practice. Make your home in my word. See, it's essential if we're going to say that Jesus is our rabbi, this rabbi that we are in this series talking about, then we got to listen to his teachings. we got to know what he has to say about stuff. And if you don't even know how to get started and all that, we've got a class that's going on right now in the other room on basic Bible understanding, how to read and study God's Word for yourself. And if you kind of feel like you're lost in all this, I'd encourage you next Sunday, show up there. The class just started a couple weeks ago. You can still get in on it. It's vital if we say Jesus is our authority that we know what it is that he has to say. That's absolutely essential because that's what he's saying. If you want to be my disciple, you've got to make your home in my words. That's your residence. So the discipleship question comes to each and every one of us. Do I believe that he is right in what he says? Do I really believe he has this authority? If I'm going to be one of his disciples, if I'm going to be one of his followers, I've got to answer that question. Do I believe that he is right in what he says about God? about my life, about the human condition, about God's kingdom and about community? Because clearly those who were following him, some did not. Notice he is speaking to those who have come to believe in him. There are people who have just started following, and yet when he confronts them about themselves, they don't want to hear it. They said, we're Abraham's descendants have never been slaves to anyone. When in truth, they had. <laughs> The history of the Jewish people included slavery. They were slaves in Egypt. They were taken away as slaves not too much earlier than this in Babylon. Now, right now, they're under the Roman impression. They're living in their own home country, but the Romans are in charge. At the very moment they are speaking these words, they are in slavery, but they refuse to admit it. That prideful, I'm not going to give in spirit is there, and that's what Jesus is talking about. He says, you're descendants of Abraham, yet some of you are trying to kill me because there's no room in your hearts for my message. You might think you're free, but you're a slave. You're a slave because there's no room in your heart for my message. You see, if you don't believe that he is right in what he says, then you can't possibly follow him. You've got to make the decision. 
Jesus said, since I'm telling you the truth, why don't you believe me? Anyone who belongs to God listens gladly to the words of God, but you don't listen because you don't belong to God. It is absolutely essential for those who would call themselves Christ followers that we know what he has to say, that we pay attention to his words. He's given us an authority, and it's an authority that we're to embrace and hold on to and make our residence in. But more than that, his truth is not just an authority. He says now he's also given us a wisdom that we're to put into practice. His words are not information to fill our heads. It is a practice that we are to put into our lives. Jesus understood that the deepest knowledge comes only through doing. That's why he says, then, if you hold on my teaching and will be my disciples, then you will know the truth. When you put this into practice, when you make me your authority, when you start following what I've had to say, then you'll know the truth. See, there's two different types of knowing. We all understand that. How many here remember, like back in high school, taking your, your geometry or maybe trigonometry final, you know, and cramming for that test and memorizing all that stuff? Anybody here remember cramming for, for a final in math? Anybody? Okay, now all of you who have your hands raised, how many actually remember what a sine, cosine, and tangent are? Yeah, except for you math majors, all right? You're disgusting. I, I, I sat down the other day, I, I, I forget what it was, not too long ago, and I had to do the square root. I could not remember. How do you do, how do you find the square root? I can't remember that stuff anymore. Because there are learning, there's a learning that comes from studying and memorization and gathering information and putting it all in your brain to pass a test. And there is another type of knowledge that comes from experience and participation and relationship and involvement. And it's that second type of knowledge that Jesus is talking about here. Actually, in the Greek language, in fact, in many languages, those two different types of, le- of learning have two different types of words for them, two different words to describe them. The word that's used here is the word that has to do with knowledge by experience, knowledge that comes by practice, knowledge that comes through relationship. It's the Greek word ginosko. That's why Jesus says if you were Abraham's children, then you would do the things that Abraham did. He says, because knowledge is not just something that you fill your brain with. It's something that you do. And if you were truly Abraham's descendants, then you would do. You would do the things that Abraham did. What did Abraham do? Hebrews 11 says, Abraham had faith, so he obeyed God. God called him to go to a place he would later receive as his own. So he went. See, that's what Abraham did. He believed that what God had to say was the truth. And though it didn't look all that together for him, and though he didn't fully understand what it meant, he believed enough about what God said to be the truth that he got up and obeyed and he went. And he left the land that he was familiar with and went to the land that God had promised him. And that's what Abraham's descendants do. See, though in Greek culture, there's this understanding of a separation between two different types of knowledge. In Hebrew culture, that's a foreign concept. In Jesus' time, that was a foreign concept. There was no sense of intellectual belief that was separate from practice and participation. Because that just doesn't make sense. And that's what Jesus is saying. So the discipleship question is, the second discipleship question is, 
will I do what he tells me to do? See, the first question is, do I believe that he is right in what he says about me and about God? The second question is, okay, if I believe he is right, then will I do what he says to do? Because to follow Jesus is to trust him. And to trust him is to obey what he said. In the church that I grew up, when we would do evangelism and and go to share faith with people, uh, we were taught to start with this one question. The question was, if you were to die tonight, do you know for certain that you would go to heaven? Now, that's a good question. That's an important question. That's an eternity question, okay? That is a very, very good question, but it's not the only question. Because the other question that is just as equally valid and just as important is, suppose you didn't die tonight and you got up tomorrow morning. How will you live your life? Because sometimes I think in evangelical circles, we have reduced the kingdom of God to something that's going to happen somewhere in the future. And yes, Lord, I will trust you with my eternal destiny, but I'm not going to listen to what you have to say about my finances. And sure don't mess with my relationships and don't tell me what I can and cannot do. Yes, Lord, I trust you with my eternal destiny, but don't talk to me about being a part of a community of faith. Don't talk to me about serving your people. Don't talk to me about caring for the poor or watching out for the needy. I don't want to do that stuff. I'm just going to trust you for me at my eternal destiny. And that's why Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Because it's about the kingdom of God. And Jesus, our rabbi, our teacher says, it's not just about something in the future. The kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God has come to you. And it is to you that are to bring the kingdom of God to others. And you do that through your life and how you live it and how you reach out. Why do you call me Lord and you don't do the things that I told you to do? Well, Lord, because they're hard things. Because they seem impossible. Because they just seem so counter to common sense. Because it might require me to change or give up something. Why do you call me Lord and yet you do not do what I told you to do? Because what he told us to do is hard stuff. He said things like love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Because remember, the truth is not about ideas. It's about reality. You read Jesus' teaching and he is very clear. He is very straightforward. He's very simple. He says, this is how you live life. This is what life in the kingdom looks like. This is what I've invited you to and I've called you to follow me. So why do you call me Lord? Don't do the things I've told you to do. If his words are truth, and I believe that what he says about me and about my world and about the kingdom is right, 
then if I'm going to follow that, I've got to obey what he's told me to do. Because as a truth revealer, he's given us something to put into practice. An understanding and an ability to live. Which is the third thing that he makes up here. That in giving us the truth, he's given us freedom to live. To really live. He says you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Because whether you want to admit it or not, you are a slave. That is the human condition. We are slaves to sin. Everyone who sins, he said, is a slave to sin. And now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. We are slaves. And this slavery comes with all kinds of shackles and chains. We are slaves to guilt because of our sin. We are slaves to shame. We are slaves to selfishness and pride. We become slaves to pretense and hypocrisy, to hurt, to anger, to revenge. We are slaves to our weaknesses and our struggles and our failures and our addictions. And the list goes on and on and on. And we can stand and say, we are not slaves to anyone. Jesus says, you are slaves to sin. And all the chains and shackles that come with it. But if you hold to my words, you will be my followers. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus' teachings break those chains. They come to give freedom for life. They come to give us truth about the kingdom and about living in community and about being a part of God's family. Because see, that's what he's offering here. That's what he says. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. A slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son, a son belongs to it forever. And that's the exchange that Christ has offered to us. Exchange your slavery to life in the family. Exchange the bondage And all that holds you back to experience what it means to be called a child of God. Those are his words. And he says, that's the truth. He knows what he's talking about. And that's why he was so impatient with so many of the other rabbis of his time. Because they wouldn't teach the freedom. In fact, he says, you load people down with burdens they cannot carry and you yourselves will not lift a finger to help them. You just keep piling on the guilt. You just keep piling on the shame. You just keep piling on the burdens and the responsibilities, but you give no help to live it. And that's why his promise is so freeing when he says, take my yoke because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It is the way that you were meant to live. And he gives us freedom. He gives us freedom from the guilt and the shame that we carry. He gives us freedom from pretending to be something we are not and just simply be ourselves in his presence. He gives us the freedom of community of other people who are just as bad as we are. And yet we can be honest with each other and be ourselves and know that we are accepted and forgiven and set free. He frees us from the, from the, the, the bondage of revenge And he says, when you can forgive somebody and really let go. His words are liberating and freedom. And so the discipleship discipleship question is, will I trust him? Will I trust him with my whole life? 
Do I believe that what he said is right? Will I do the things that he says to do? And will I trust him with my whole life? See, on the cross, he paid the price to break sin's stranglehold on our life and all the stuff that comes with it to free us from our past and the guilt and the shame and the hurt and the failure and all of it and give us a freedom to love and forgive and restore and renew. That's what his words are about. And that's why he keeps asking us, why do you call me, Lord, but don't do what I tell you to do? Don't you understand the freedom that there is in this? Let me quote, since I found somebody smarter than myself. Don Everts wrote a book, God in the Flesh, and he writes of his own experience. He writes, I distinctly remember the first time I realized Jesus' weird advice in Luke 6 wasn't just inspirational and spiritual sounding, but genius. It was Christmas morning several years ago. At the time, my brother was in prison at Snake River Correctional Institute in Eastern Oregon. And I knew he was going to be alone all during the holidays. I figured if I were in prison, I would want family to visit me on Christmas. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It was kind of staring me in the face, so I went. I didn't tell him I was going because, well, I would want to be surprised if I were in prison on Christmas. Do unto others, after all. I didn't have a car, so I took a Greyhound bus, always an adventure, from Tacoma, Washington to Ontario, Ontario, Oregon. It was late on a dark, windy Christmas Eve when the bus screeched to a stop in downtown Ontario. I trudged through the snow and ice to the edge of town and got a room in a dingy motel next to the interstate. Early Christmas morning, way before the sun was even thought about, even thought about coming up, I woke up. I put on every stitch of clothing I had brought with me and left behind my warm motel room to, the green, to greet the dark, snow-swept plain of eastern Oregon, six miles to the prison, four miles along the interstate, two miles along the small road leading over the hill to a prison. On the way, I began to doubt Jesus' teaching, do unto others. Yeah, it sounded nice, nice material for bathroom plaques and refrigerator magnets, but it had led me to one of the most painful, awkward times in my life. As I trudged along the interstate trying to walked the narrow line between getting run over by a speeding semi on my left and falling down into the embankment on my right, I began daydreaming about the hotel room, that warm, comfy motel room. Had cable, you know. But here I was, cold, tired, walking along an interstate in the dead dark of morning, daydreaming about why sidewalks were never built along interstates. Do unto others. What an upside-down, ludicrous piece of advice, Jesus, I thought about. I thought about my girlfriend, about her parents who had loved me and invited me to spend Christmas with them in their warm house, far from any interstates. But I was roused from my daydreams after taking the small road that headed from the interstate to the prison. When I came over a small hill and saw the prison, razor wire gleaming in the rising sun far off in the distance, further than I thought it'd be, I looked at my watch and realized I wasn't going to make it on time. Visiting hours were limited. Get there late, you get less time to visit. And something happened then. In my heart, I longed to be there on time. I wanted my brother to get every possible moment out of his cell on that Christmas day. I longed for that. And so I started to run. 
slowly at first. A few cars would drive by, so I'd slow down and move to the edge of the road. I was self-conscious about running on the road. I was self-conscious about three layers of clothes and my big army jacket. After the cars passed, I started running again. I checked my watch and began to run faster. Some more cars came by, but I didn't slow down or even give them much room to pass. I was running. I was just flat out running. Eyes looked ahead at the prison, straining with everything in me to get there. Something inside my soul had clicked into place. This longing, this deep desire to lay down everything I had to make sure my brother got his visiting time. I imagined him getting his name called and his cell door sliding open to his surprise. And I ran faster. My lungs began to ache. My legs were getting rubbery. Ears, cars were swerving all around this weird army jacket-laden guy who was taking up most of the road. But none of it mattered. All that mattered was getting there to my brother. And that's when it happened. As I ran along the road that morning, caring more about my brother getting all the time out of out all the time than about my tired legs or aching lungs or my embarrassed appearance, I felt more human, more alive than I ever had in my life. And I realized that Jesus had been right. He was a genius. Jesus was right. Do unto others. My own common sense never would have gotten me out of that motel room. Well, let's just be honest. I would never even have left on a greyhound on Christmas Eve to begin with. But Jesus... Upside-down, ludicrous teaching, which I had seriously started to doubt while trudging through the frozen, unwelcoming interstate, turned out to be right. It was right. I couldn't believe it. Do unto others. He wasn't just trying to be inspirational. He was being brilliant. It wasn't a clever idea. It was the seed of reality. That there was only, that was the only waiting there for my heart to be good soil so that it could grow and grow and grow. I got, to the experience, I got to experience fruit that day because I had submitted to Jesus' seemingly upside-down teaching. I got to run the remaining mile and arrive breathless, breathless in my body but having sprinted, by having sprinted the last two miles, breathless in my spirit from the staggering realization that Jesus had known all along. He knew that laying down my life would have me blessed and joyful and feeling truly human. I was shocked at his genius. I got to have an unforgettable conversation with a very tense and very confused guard, apparently a skinny guy in a bulky army jacket sprinting toward the prison as a guard's idea of questionable activities. (laughs) I got to see my brother's shock and surprise when he noticed me sitting in a small white card table in the visiting room. I got to laugh and sing and joke around with him on a bright Christmas morning. I got to talk about life with him, sit peacefully as brothers. When my brother found out that I had walked and run All the way to the prison, I got to explain why I would give up a comfortable Christmas to run through snow and visit a brother who had treated me so poorly while growing up. I got to tell him of Jesus and what I had learned that morning. I got to cry together with my brother that Christmas morning and laugh and sing. We were filled with the awkward air of a stiff prison visiting room with the sounds of heaven on that Christmas day. The looming guards and prison uniforms and razor wire faded away as my brother and I celebrated Christmas, my favorite Christmas ever. Now that day didn't happen because I was loving and clever and nice, nothing of the sort. That day wasn't my idea, due unto others. That day happened because I dared to submit myself to the words of Jesus, and it turns out he is brilliant, and his words usher us in 
to reality. Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Would you bow your heads with me? We have declared our purpose as a church. It is our mission to help people become wholehearted followers, disciples of Jesus. Most of us in this room have accepted Him as personal Savior. What I'm going to ask you to do this morning, if you haven't already, is accept Him as your rabbi, your teacher, your Lord. Ask yourself those questions. Do I believe that He is right in what He says? Will I do what it is He tells me to do? Will I trust Him? with every aspect of my life. The only person who can answer those questions for yourself is you. This morning, God's talking to your heart about some things. There's areas in which you need to submit and obey, trust. I invite you in this closing prayer to make a decision about just say, Lord, I don't completely understand it, believe, but I believe what you say is right. I'm going to do what you told me to do. I'm going to trust you with every aspect of my life. And if you've never made that decision for the very, very first time, it's called a walk of faith. And the first step is to acknowledge, I've got sin. I'm a slave to sin. I need forgiveness. I need your restoration, Lord. Maybe that's the decision that you need to make this morning. Let me encourage you as we close in prayer to do something about what you heard this morning. Lord, your words are sometimes hard. They are challenging. But they are true. And in the times when we have taken those steps of faith and believed you and did it your way. We discovered you knew what you were talking about all along. And yet for some reason we still balk and we hesitate more challenged in new ways. This morning, before you, we acknowledge you as our rabbi, our teacher, our Lord, the one who we will follow. Not just with pious-sounding words, but with our lives. We will follow you. We will do what you've told us to do. We will trust you with our lives. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.